My Car Guru, Season 11, Episode 148. Hey folks, welcome to this edition of My Car Guru. I'm down another octave, my voice. This uh, I've got the epizootics, as my mom used to call it. I don't know where that came from. I haven't Googled that. I wonder if it's, it's probably not a real word. She just made it up. But anyway, it's that upper respiratory thing going on. But I was getting ready to do the show, and I looked over. My door was shut. Looked over, and it wasn't one of my grandchildren. It was a, a guy that I recognize. And I tell you what, when his face appears in the, the window of my door, I open the door. I stop what I'm doing. Not only because he's probably my best friend that I have, other than my wife, but uh, also because it all started as a, his being, him being a customer of mine, and he shattered the record. He has bought over, conservatively, just him, well, and his wife, over 150 vehicles since 1979. That's a lot of cars and trucks and vans. He's bought everything from, well, the first thing he bought from him was a 1979 Mazda RX-7 as a wedding present for his wife. And then as we got to know each other, um, he ended up trading the RX-7 because it wasn't practical and got something else, and then he would buy something for himself. And he just became a trader. And over time, you know, got to the point where, you know, I'm sitting at the dealership and he shows up and I said, what do you want now? And he'd already picked something out. And then we, it's not like he's really wealthy either. I mean, he's a solid middle-class guy. But he got to the point where... I knew that he was going to trade, so I always had to put him in something that I knew I could trade for in six months or three months. You know, I think the longest he's ever kept anything is just maybe a year and a half, possibly. But then it wasn't just him. It was his family. And then the business expanded to her family and then uncles and cousins. And it's just amazing how, you know, when you develop relationships with people, that the, I guess the lack of trust that a lot of car dealers face just evaporates. It's gone because they know you and they like you and they trust you and they feel comfortable doing business with you. You know, and, and I, you don't have to buy 150 cars from me for us to feel that way, hopefully, or you to feel that way, hopefully. I mean, really, it should happen on the first sale and just continue on from then. There's a lot less loyalty in the market now than there used to be. You remember when, if somebody was a Chevy buyer, they are always a Chevy buyer. You know, same thing with Ford buyers. I mean, even today, my generation, you know, the baby boomers, they're still pretty much locked in. Now, a lot of them jumped ship, you know, with uh, back in the 80s primarily. When Honda came out with the Honda Accord, you know, people were saying, you know, that's very affordable. It gets great gas mileage, and, you know, it's made by Honda. They're a real quality manufacturer. And that stuff coming from GM and Ford and Chrysler is a bunch of junk. You know, people would have bad experiences with product quality. You know, the old saying that, that General Motors and Ford and all of them had this thing called planned obsolescence, meaning that when a vehicle got a certain age, if it hit 100,000 miles, it was worn out. And see, that's not the case anymore. But people started buying Hondas, right? And Toyotas and uh, Datsuns, and then they became Nissans. And, and so the American car companies lost gigantic chunks of market share. 
Now, the Honda Accord became the best-selling car in America. And number two was the Toyota Camry. So Ford responded successfully a couple times uh, with two primary vehicles. Number one was the Ford Taurus. When that thing came out, I, I chuckled. You know, I thought it was the ugliest vehicle, all rounded. You know, everything else was boxy. You know, it just seemed weird going from a Ford Granada, which looked like a refrigerator going down the road, to a Ford Taurus, which was just curvy. I mean, the back window, I'm sorry, the back window was round, completely round. And, you know, we're looking at those in the car magazine and saying, well, those won't sell. We're going to kill them. We didn't. They killed us. And they became the number one selling vehicle in America. Uh, with the exception of the F-150. So, and then the other vehicle that Ford came out with, which was a tremendous success, was the Ford Explorer. You know, the Bronco had died. O.J. Simpson killed it, among other people. And then there was a lull there until Ford came out with the Explorer. Well, the Explorer did really great. And then they had the Firestone fiasco. You remember the Firestone problem? Firestone tires were... Blowing up, going down the road, you have these big blowouts and that people would lose control of their Ford Explorer, which most of the Firestones were on at the time. And you had this spitting contest between Ford and Firestone. Now, the Ford Explorer was, a, I guess, a, a victim of it because, I mean, other cars had Firestone tires, but Ford's Explorer had a pretty high center of gravity. And so what that means is when it had a blowout, and if it started going sideways, they would tend to roll over. And that really got a lot of bad press for the Ford Motor Company and hurt at Ford Explorer sales. And so you got your, your foreign competitors from Japan, mostly at that time, stepped in to fill that void. And so they lost market share, market share there. You know, where the domestic automakers have been able to maintain market share has been on trucks. They've never really or the imports have never really been able to make any inroads. You think about the Nissan Titan. It just hasn't sold in anywhere close to the numbers that the Ram and the, the Silverado and the F-150 have. Uh, Toyota has had a little bit more success, but still not even a fraction of what uh, the domestics have made. I don't know why that is. I, I think it's because uh, loyalty to, you know, that's the same thing we were talking about earlier. Loyalty to a particular brand applies a whole lot more to trucks than it does to SUVs, crossovers, and passenger cars. Unless, of course, you have a friend like my friend. So, you know, there were many times that he would see something else. He said, I wish you sold these. I wish you sold that, you know. But the loyalty kept him with me. You know, and of course it didn't hurt when I had five different dealerships, everything from Toyotas to Chevrolets, Fords, Mitsubishis, Mazdas. At that time I had a lot to offer. But you know, what really warms your heart as far as this business is concerned is that I've got so many people that they were diehard Chevy people or diehard Mazda people. And when I gave up the, those franchises or sold the businesses and uh, became a Ford dealer and a Nissan dealer, well, they just stayed. Why? Because they were still able to buy from me. And you don't know how much I appreciate that. That means a lot. And especially when somebody would really like to buy a Honda Pilot, but they buy a Nissan Pathfinder 
because I sell a Nissan Pathfinder. And that's the kind of relationship you want. And that's not just born from loyalty, you know, to me. It's also loyalty to my business and the way we take care of them after the fact. And that's also critical because if, if my business provided terrible service, I'm sure they'd find some excuse to go someplace else and buy a car. But hopefully, and more than likely, before they would do that, they would come and tell me. I've had several friends come in and say, Lenny, you need to fix this. You know, I had to stay on hold too long at your dealership. I called in the other day or, or you know, I was supposed to get a 30-minute oil change and it took an hour. You know, when those kind of things happen, man, I appreciate it. I really do. Because that's something I can fix. Uh, I, I can't fix somebody who leaves and won't come back and then won't tell you why they won't come back. So please don't do that. Just come on back. Well, I'm going to take my first break. I'll be back here in just a minute. I was just thinking about why we lose customers. Not we, but you know, when I'm talking we, I'm talking about we peoples in the car business. Why do we lose people? And I think a lot of it starts with the sales transaction that it's not a great experience. It's just either a, just they got what they expected, but they didn't get anything special. And then, you know, over the period of ownership, there was no more contact. They just, you know, once they bought the car, uh, the dealership forgot about them. Now, a lot of follow-up that you get from car dealerships now is automated. You probably know that. You know, it comes... Email has made it so much easier, so much less expensive, really, to be able to stay in contact in that way because, you know, you can send an email for free. Uh, you got to pay for the equipment to do it, you know, the computers, the software. And uh, if you have a, a third party, which a lot of dealers use third party, parties to handle all of their follow-up, we don't. And we try to do it personally. We send our emails from here, you know, at the dealership, whereas, uh, like I say, a lot of dealerships use outside services is to handle that kind of stuff. But, you know, that's one reason why they lose contact with their customers and therefore, uh, you know, they they never see them again. You know, what would it take for you to want to come back to a car dealership where you had a great sale experience? Because, you know, once you buy it, you pretty much forget about them, don't you? Until you have to go back and get it or need to go back and get it serviced or you have a warranty issue and then you go back to the dealership. I always encourage my salespeople to stay in touch with their customers. And if a customer wants to make a service appointment, you know, sometimes they don't like to call and have to wait on hold and stuff like that. Just let them send you a text and you make the appointment. And then you text them back and say, hey, I made you an appointment. And it's at such and such a time. You know, these little things will connect. Well, let me ask you this. Would, would that connect you to a business if they were really thorough and positive and followed up with you and and made it real easy for you to come back and do business with them? Of course it would. I mean, you think of the businesses that provide the very best service to you. Those are the ones that I think you're the most loyal to. I am. I know I am. Because I know that they care. Or I know that they have been diligent enough to set up incredible processes. And, you know, the infrastructure is there to take care of me over the long term. And it keeps me coming back. You know, restaurants do the same thing. I mean, if they are consistently good as far as the food service and and uh, as far as the quality of food and stuff, you'll go back unless you get tired of it, and that happens. I'm about tired of the, uh, what is that big salad that I get at Cheesecake Factory? Oh, yeah, the Santa Fe salad at the Cheesecake Factory. 
I've eaten enough salad to fill a 55-gallon garbage can, and I'm about over it. But I love the service that I get there, so I'll just get something else. And they have quite the extensive menu, don't they? Now, the biggest complaint that I get from people who call me and say, I need help. Basically, they involve a miscommunication or the lack of transparency, you know, between the person at the car dealership, whether it's somebody in the service department or somebody in the sales department. And this is really where I encourage customers to make sure that they do certain things that will prevent or head off the poor communication. For example, when you go into a service department, let's say today or tomorrow you're going in to get some work done on your your car. Let's say it could be warranty work and it could be customer pay work. Whatever you need to have done, have it written down on a piece of paper. And I I know you want to be able to keep all this stuff in your head or, or put it in your phone and where you can at least text it to the service advisor or, you know, you can hold it up and show it to him and then make sure that if the only time that this vehicle misbehaves with you is when you're driving it, make sure you do not leave it without riding with somebody so that they can duplicate the problem. Some problems just mysteriously go away, you know, when people bring their car into the dealership. Have you noticed that? Well, my turn signal wouldn't work all day, and then when I turned into your place, it worked. I've seen that happen before. Any kind of drivability issue, you know, if you have a, a noise that's happening when you drive or you have a vibration. You know, technicians... Unfortunately, they work in a very loud environment, and their hearing deteriorates over a period of time. And if you have a mild squeak, they, you know, they may look driving all over the place and not hear it. So, you know, sometimes if I have somebody that has a hard to hear sound that their car is making, you know, I've got a certain guy that I'll go to, and man, he can pinpoint it. He's like a little uh, monkey; he can climb all over that car, and um, he's very flexible and can really. Uh, pinpoint where the noise is coming from. You know, uh, water leaks and and fluid leaks and stuff like that, those those aren't as difficult. But if you have any, like I say, any kind of drivability issue, something that acts up when you are driving, it could be when you're stopping. You know, when you apply your brakes, it makes this noise or whatever. So many of those situations are caused, well, not caused, but they manifest themselves at uh, different temperatures. So if you have something that that only does it when your car's warmed up. Make sure you, when you bring it to the dealership, you know you ride with them while it's still warm. You know if it's only when it's cold, then you may have to leave the vehicle overnight. And um, you know sometimes people don't feel comfortable doing that, but that, that's, sometimes that's just what you have to do to get them to duplicate the problem. Now I've actually gone to somebody's house, you know when uh, they said it only ha- happens when it's cold. And they wouldn't leave it with us. So I'd, I'd send a te- technician to their house or service manager, or I'd go and see if we could duplicate the problem. But that, that's one of the main reasons that cars don't get fixed is because they can't duplicate it. And the communication between you and them is not good. Another thing you can do is video the vehicle, you know, when it's not doing what it's supposed to do or making the noise or whatever. It might be hard to hear. But, like, if it's, you know, making a rattling noise, the engine's you're hearing a knocking noise or a pecking noise when you start the car up, a lot of that's normal when it's really cold, special this time of year. But, you know, if you can record it doing it, then that's very helpful uh, to the technician. Because what you want 
is to get it fixed right the first time. And especially you want to get it fixed before the thing runs out of warranty. Because after the warranty, you're probably going to have to pay for it. So these are just a few things that you can do to be able to stay loyal to a place. You know, a lot of this communication is a two-way street. And, you know, just understand that the service advisors are not mechanics. They are like a, I don't know, a translator. They take the information that you give them about your car and they translate it to the technician. They're totally different personality types. Most technicians are very detail-oriented. They're not real bubbly and outgoing and I mean, a lot. Some of them are, but you know, most of them they're technicians because they like to work on you know do mechanical things, and really don't care as much dealing with people face to face. And that's not their job. Their job is to diagnose problems and fix them. It's the adv- job of the service advisor to take your complaint and translate it to a language that the technician can understand. They can't just write on the repair order noise in front end, because the technician is going to look at that and he's going to say. When? How? You know, what What kind of sound? What kind of noise? Uh, is it with the brakes? Is it under acceleration? Is it motor? See, it's just there's no information there. They have to specify where you think it's coming from, when it does it, what's the temperature. You know, so many different factors, and so you have to be able to uh, lay that information out if you want to get the vehicle fixed. Otherwise, you may have to come back again and again until everybody's on the same page. And that's frustrating. I know how difficult that can be to your life. So I'm going to take my last break. I'll be back here in just a minute. You know, I do understand why people go to, oh, I don't know, a, a independent repair shop or, you know, they know somebody that works on cars and has a garage behind their house. And they, you know, they do brake work and stuff like that. And, and it's, you know, it's a great way to for some people to supplement their income and for, you know, car owners to get something done cheaply. But there are certain things that, you know, you just, you don't take to those people to work on. It's not that they're not good people. It's just they don't have the skill set necessary. I mean, we send, our top technicians go to school at least a month out of a year. And their training is, you know, online training and stuff that they do. We spend thousands and thousands of dollars on the latest tools and equipment. It's not just me. It's every new car dealer does that. Now, I know you probably have had some bad experiences. You may have had a bad experience with me. I don't know. But you, you know, you've probably had a bad experience at a car dealership. Like I said, what causes that? Usually it's communication. It's not because they don't know what they're doing. And typically it's not because they don't have the right equipment to diagnose your problem. If you've got a, a major issue, like a check engine light, a lot of people say, well, it's just, you know, it could be your gas cap. That's right. That's the first thing you check when your check engine light comes on or service engine soon light. You go back to your, your uh, gas door, open it up, and tighten down the gas cap. Or close the door. Like on Fords, they don't have gas caps. You just close the door and it seals up. That can trigger a check engine light. But there are other much more serious things. And what happens is people go to, I don't know, advanced auto parts or someplace like that, and they get them to to do a scan to find out why their check check engine light is on, what codes are in there. They can't fix it. They can tell you what they think it is. Oh, you got a bad O2 sensor. Well, you may not. O2 sensor might be fine, but there might be something else that's causing that code to come up on the O2 sensor. There's There's lots of different things. Dealership technicians just have the best tools, 
and diagnostic equipment, um, and they also have the training. Why do you think it's more expensive? It's not because they just want to charge you more. It's because they have all the, the toys. You know, it's just like going to the doctor. You know, I mean, when I had my heart problem and had some blocked or some pretty serious blockages, you know, I'm not going to an optometrist to have that looked at. Um, I, I went to a cardiologist, and they went in with the most sophisticated equipment and found my blockages and then fixed them, I hope. So you certainly wouldn't shortchange that. You shouldn't do it on your car either. You know, if you have an older model car, something that's 20, 25 years old, you know, those people at, at the independent shops are really good at that kind of stuff, and they're using aftermarket parts because probably the OEM parts for your vehicle aren't available anymore, and the aftermarket parts are pretty much there forever. So, you know, that's not a bad idea. But if it's a late model car, if it's 10 years or uh, 10 years old or newer, you need to take it back to the dealership. Now, can you get tires at a tire store? Yes. Can they do brakes? Yes. I would want them to use uh, OEM brake pads, though, if I'm having that done. There's just so many things that it makes better sense to go back to the people at the dealership. So that's my point, and I'm sticking with it. Well, thanks for listening to this edition of My Car Guru. Call me, 423-552-2020, or send me an email to LennyLawson2020 at gmail.com, and I'll see you next time.